Welcome to Lectionary Call-Ins for Tuesday, August 16th, 2022, where two laypersons, a pastor and an academician, gather for about 45 minutes each week, discuss the Gospel Lectionary for the coming Sunday. This Sunday is August 21st. Each Tuesday, we call in from wherever we may be at 6.30 a.m. Eastern Time. And today, for our friend Charles Willard, Minnesota, that means it's 5.30 a.m. Uh, and since it's a call-in podcast, we all shift time zones from time to time. Our little team's working to be fair, faithful to lectionary year C. That does put us in the Gospel of Luke on Sunday. We hope this discussion will provide areas of focus and reflection. Here's how it works. We develop perspectives independently after the lead-off person shares some formative questions. And then in this virtual discussion room, we share, encourage, and we challenge each other. And here are the folks joining us in today's discussion. Sarah Mickelson in Tampa, Florida. Charles Willard in Minnesota. Bill Hall, St. Petersburg, Florida. I'm Don Upton in Charlotte, North Carolina. And our lead for today is our friend Bill Hall. He's going to read the scripture and guide us through the discussion. Hello, Bill. What's the good news? Uh, The good news is we're together. Good morning and welcome to my team members and those who will watch and listen later. Let me uh, do something before I move ahead. Uh, many of us are familiar with Frederick Buechner, have been influenced by his writings. He's a Presbyterian pastor, Bible commentator, novelist. He died yesterday at age 96, died peacefully in his sleep. So uh, what a uh, a praise report for his life, and I got to hear him and meet him in person several times. A person who suffered in his own life with uh, his father committing suicide when he was a child, his mother struggling, and uh, Frederick Beekner will will be missed, and we give thanks to God for his life and his faith. Um, just a quick note, and then I'll read the scripture. We're going to read in a moment uh, here, Luke 13, chapter, uh, verses 10 through 17. This story is recorded only in the Gospel of Luke, and you'll quickly discern that it's a familiar story of Jesus healing on the Sabbath and the controversy. In chapter 6, earlier, uh, Luke records another Sabbath healing, this one involving a man with a withered hand, And as you will hear, this one involves a woman. And I read from a a version recently released called the New Revised Standard Version Updated Edition. Uh, It pays attention to gender language issue and other things. By my discernment, there's only one minor word that's different in this from the standard New Revised Standard Version. But I read from this updated version Uh, This is the word of the Lord. Let us listen. Now, Jesus was teaching in the synagogues on the Sabbath. And just then there appeared a woman with a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. She was bent over and quite unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, woman, You are set free from your ailment. When Jesus laid his hands on her, immediately she stood up straight and began praising God. But 
the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus secured on the Sabbath, kept saying to the crowd, there are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it to water? water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 long years, be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day? When Jesus said this, all his opponents were put to shame and the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things being done by him. The word of the Lord, thanks be, thanks to, be God. to God. Now, a, a brief comment before I read the first question. Um, Eugene Peterson, in his introduction to the Gospel of Matthew, makes a comment that I think applies to all of Scripture. We are neither accidental nor incidental to the story. The point he's making is we are those who struggle with whatever or experience whatever Scripture is talking about. And it's this issue of the the challenge but the importance of, as it were, building a bridge between then and now. If we simply leave these as ancient texts, they're museum exhibits. But we believe the Word of God is living and that we are in this story. And that's what's behind the three questions that I offer today. And number one is a little lengthy, but I want to give some background. And then, Sarah, heads up, I'm going to come to you first. Mark Davis comments, quote, Surely it is not the ruler of the synagogue's place to tell God whether to heal or not to heal on the Sabbath. Even more curiously, while he is indignant that Jesus healed on the Sabbath, he blames the woman for coming to be healed on the Sabbath. And if a healing occurs, would not there be some kind of reverence, some kind of wonder, or at least some kind of joy that would prevent a normal person from getting indignant? Everything about this protest is maddening, end quote. Biblical scholar Sally Holt observes that the synagogue leaders seem to be precluded, quote, from understanding the passionate perspective offered by Jesus. So, Sarah, the question. Expanding beyond specific Sabbath debates, in faith communities today, what are similar issues creating conflict? Sarah? So I took a broader tact than looking at specifics, and I apologize I've not I tackled the question head on. Um, and and since my specific observations are not driven by Sabbath rules or by um, specific conflicts, I think these are general things that are. I think those are symptoms of other problems, and I I uncovered a problem and I was able to see it and able to respond to it, and it's changed things dramatically. So 
my questions, my response starts with questions as it usually does. So what are we failing to behold? And and using all the words that are in that, um, and, and what might those around us be bound by or to today? Whether it's the Buccaneers game and we got to go, let's get done with church so we can go to the football game, or is it about relationships? I think it starts with relationships, and do I have those with the people around me? Do I feel authentic joy for and with those that are loosed from their bind or their bindings? Um, or are we suspended in pursuit of decorum and rules more than the people choosing the synagogue leaders? Are, and, and, and I think, you know, sometimes it's, it's not one or the other. It's this weird between as we move between expectations and decorum to what's the most valuable thing in this picture, the woman and the relationship we have with her. So for me, um, I thought about what flips that compassion switch in our hearts. At what point do we let go of the decorum and lift up the people? And so I'm going to tell a story now that may linger on too long, so I'll try to speed through it. Um, When my mom died, we inherited a dog, a little Italian greyhound-like dog named Gigi. Um, In the course of three short months, her living environment changed. She was separated from my mom and dropped into a whole new family. She seemed to be defensive, hostile, territorial to everything. She was given the name a demon dog. Um, but when she came to live with us, we got to know her a little bit. And, and I'm traditionally a person that watches and, and looks and observes and tries to figure out why. So um, she was afraid of everything all the time. She couldn't go outside unless somebody went with her. She was territorial. She was very defensive. Um, and, and across a certain length of time, we found out or I observed and tested the idea that she might be deaf. And we have confirmed that she has little or no hearing. Um, she can hear really strong sounds like garbage trucks and thunder, but she can't hear voices. So as soon as we started to observe her with that thought, our understanding shifted and our posture changed to one of consistent intentional affection by getting her attention and petting her and greeting her um, when we came home. And uh, it's changed her personality slightly. She's no longer um, as afraid. She's no longer intimidated by the other animals, and she's no longer aggressive unless there's food, which, you know, I can kind of read that because people are possessive of food anyway. But we now view her bad behavior as a symptom of her growing deafness and her anxiety at losing the really, it's such an isolating experience that she can't, she didn't have a pack to belong to that would protect her. So I, I thought about this in relationship to our story, and frequently the things that we find most difficult, the most sharp edges we encounter, are often coming from different reasons. And if, if I spent time 
thinking about how do we justify our lack of relationship thinking. And we cling to sometimes the patterns and the structures because they take less effort. Or they're easier to abide. They don't, I mean, people are prickly. People are, are troubling. They're inconsistent. They're moody. And they, they require a certain amount of patience that sometimes I I feel like I didn't come with an extra cup of patience that day. So I think about the challenge of working with people versus the challenge of working with systems. And systems are always more attractive to me. So um, I think about cleaning the stereotypes. I, I think about falling into adherence to pattern and, and decorum. And I think the indictment here is that we value the structure more than we value the people that are served by the structure. And so this story really challenges me from that perspective because I think sometimes it's just easier to fall into my pattern. And I think Jesus is, is walking that right up to my front door. Thank you. St. Francis is smiling. <laughs> that you, animals uh, offer us something of God. Don, as you walk across this bridge between then and now, what comes to your mind? This is a struggle for me. I, I guess I'll say I want to be sure that I'm, I'm working hard not to be in judgment or to hold up anything that is precious to anybody on what you view as the day of the Creator, your Sabbath, or the set-aside time that you have in your life. And those are sweet. I mean, there, there are practices and behaviors and even the simple regulations that are beautiful. And uh, and I want to separate that from this conversation. Uh, even, I think, the things that we may personally take a front to. So for me, on a Sunday, someone who starts their lawnmower, I snap back. There's, there's something sweet in that. You know, there's a history there. There's a centuries of standards and expectations, as long as I can see that as superficial in my heart. Uh, so I'll just make a few points, and they're, they're broad, not to be evasive, but I think for, for, the, for this year that's at the core of it. The first one is just the principle of this woman and this healing being too late, as in there were six days when you could do this, not now. I, I think that's a big part of this. Or too early. There's six days of life. Not now. I, that's the core of this passage for me this year. The not now. You're late. Or you're too early. Go home. And Je- I don't know how often Jesus is there. Was it 18 years she's been like this? And she collides with the Christ? It's not clear she asked for anything. She's just she can just be seen, and it's not now. Period. I'll take that to my Sabbath now. That's enough. The second one is, I think there is the caution about collective action, and what I see in my practices, and I visit churches. I love going to different churches. I, I'm an ecumenical guy. I like seeing the practices and the liturgies and the prayers. And I like all of that. The, the desire to take collective action. Now that we're all together and we are of the same mind, what are we going to exert in our community? 
What power can we bring? Heads up. You know, instead of, you know, and, and while we're at it, for you, not now. We have business to do. Not now. You're late. You're early. We're here to express the sameness and the power. So that's the second one. Um, and then uh, the third one is uh, just the sustaining of life, the ox. Not now. And the ox story is just so plain. It's so beautifully done, which is we're preserving lives. We're preserving our assets. We're preserving the ox. But not now for others. The, the hypocrisy is beautifully illustrated. And then at the end, the indignancy, you know, goes to sense of like a, 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 for some astonishment or even humiliation. And I, I think for me, I'm not pointing at the person that's declaring what is right and wrong. I'm seeing this as uh, a reveal that on a that on a Sabbath, my heart can be revealed. It's an apocalypse. It is an apocalypse, and a part of the apocalypse, the personal apocalypse, is the the, the unbearable humiliation of confronting one's own heart can happen on a Sabbath. You know, <laughs> when I get that for, oh my goodness, am I ready to not be comfortable and to have my heart shown to me? And that humiliation is something I have to go through sometimes. So those are my thoughts, Bill. Thank you, Don. Charles, your thoughts. I find it a very puzzling story. Uh, it's a puzzling story because it has no um, explicit ex- expectation from the woman, and none, as far as we can tell. She she did what she was doing and done apparently done for years now, and and suddenly Jesus intervenes uh, and says. Uh, you're fine, and then proceeds to make her fine. And I guess I'm also puzzled by the, because I don't understand how the leaders in the synagogue could have said, well, of course it's all right to feed your flock. That's what happens to flocks on Saturday, and Sunday, and Monday, and Tuesday, and all all, all seven days of the week, we don't have a, we don't have a pause in eating, just because it's it's the Sabbath. The flock doesn't have any idea that it's the Sabbath. It's the next day, and it's time to eat. And so let's eat. So it's 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 strange the way it it it, it gets set out here. And I think uh, I'm frustrated by the fact that we only get. We only get parts of the story. We don't get we don't get really um, well. He does say there are six days in which the, the the leader of the synagogue says there are six days in which work should be done on those days and be cured, not on the Sabbath day. But there's no there's no there's no conversation. There's no community here. There's simply. You do this and you do that, and you know, and and we have this exception here, but not for you. And I, who knows what would have happened if the leaders might have said, "All right, let's let's make an exception for her, and let's let's go ahead and see what can happen." They don't do that, and but we hear 
2,000 years later, say, well, they should have done that, shouldn't they? They should have recognized that in the same way that they recognized that they, they but I, I, we're not given all the facts. We don't know what justification they had to go ahead and to violate the Sabbath by feeding animals that needed, that, you know, that didn't, didn't know that it was the Sabbath, didn't know that they weren't supposed to be eating on the Sabbath. So I'm puzzled. Okay, thank you, Charles. I do think, I didn't think to look this up. I, first of all, the Sabbath law had justification. We need to acknowledge that. And that was behind, maybe I didn't make it clear enough, that was behind my question. This is not totally, the, the, the synagogue leader is not making something up. There were restrictions in the Old Testament. I believe in the Old Testament, it made an exception if your ox was in the ditch. Uh, I think there are uh, that and maybe other exceptions. But to me, what's important is there was some justification for this synagogue leaders uh, making an issue of it, which gets at where I'm going to go. And I'm going to focus on something uh, very specific what I encourage our listeners and viewers to do in those leading classes is you don't have to deal with our examples. Look for ways in which our faith issues and biblical principles can at times collide with human needs. Now, the example I want to give that I personally experience is the ordination process for Presbyterian ministers. Almost to a person, the ministers I talked to found that rather grueling and at times unkind. It started for me when I appeared before the candidates committee back in the late 50s um, of my presbytery. The session had approved my being a candidate, which is not ordination. It means you get to start the process. And I wrote. Uh, uh, what we would today call a faith journey, what is it that's motivated me to think that or at least be willing to explore the possibility, in my case, with some reluctance that perhaps God was leading me to be a minister. When I met with the committee, one of the persons was a professor uh, of English, and he found one minor grammatical error in my paper and raked me over the coals to the point of wondering. He didn't quite say it this way, but he really wasn't sure I was uh, to be a minister. Fortunately for me, the chairperson, after this rant went on for a little while, intervened and said, let me remind us, Bill is a freshman in college, and this is one minor mistake. I'm sure he's taking note of it. Let's move on. Then the ordination exam before the committee on ministry uh, three or four years later uh, was really grueling. And what I found out later was that one of the ministers on it had an axe to grind that he ground with every candidate and succeeded in getting my ordination delayed till the next meeting. Um, 
fortunately, the exam on the floor of Presbytery was not so grueling. But as a minister over the years going to Presbytery, I grew to dread those examinations because every Presbytery had people in it who had an axe to grind based on their interpretation of Scripture, the role of Christ or whatever. And unless the candidate had their narrowly defined meaning, they would question their suitability for ordination. And I'm not exaggerating this, folks. And if there are ministers listening who have a different experience, I'd love to hear from you. Um, Somewhat related to that, in the Presbyterian Church, we make a distinction between laypersons and those ordained. Um, If I could... I would do away with that. Uh, the biblical principle to me was that people recognized gifts of people and they then appointed them or set them apart for certain tasks. The, the list in Scripture, some are called to be prophets, some pastors, uh, so forth. Um, I um, still wince a bit at the layers, um, but I'll finish with this. I think the issue as is as followers of Jesus Christ, it is important to focus on a person's needs rather than be restrained by social or religious custom. I think that's it. And that leads into my second question. And Don, heads up, I'm going to come to you in just a moment. The woman in this narrative is said by Jesus to be, quote, a child of Abraham, end quote, yet she remains unnamed. And there is, several of you have noted this, there's no indication that she asked Jesus to help her. Instead, Jesus takes the initiative to notice her and heal her. And a two-part question, who today are the ones among us whose needs are clear but remain unnoticed, or I would add, or dismissed? Who, who are those like this woman whose needs are real, but we don't focus on them? And then a personal question, if you're willing to, how are we bound and limited needing wholeness and release? How are we that woman? Don? Uh, you know, getting back to uh, the care I want to show to traditions and faith and Sabbath holy spaces this is a place where you can go where you can be seen she is seen there this is where this is God's temple she is seen there's good good and then I look at the man and I'm I'm choosing to see him as any man every man uh, which allows me to think about my cold, hard heart and <laughs> the assumptions I make going into what I view as a holy place and what my job is. So I'm looking at both of those. So to answer your question, I think this is counsel to be ready to see. And again, I'm not trying to evade the question and by not coming up with specific examples, but it's, read, it's readiness, not enforcement. And it takes a lot of discipline to be ready. Take it from me. Never ready. So 
you know, I don't even get to, you're late, you should have been here for the last six days, or you're early, you're on the wrong day. I, I, I don't seem to live in the seven-day week. You know, I happen to celebrate Sabbath on a Sunday. And uh, I set it apart. And I don't think of seven days. I think of six and one, six plus one. And that's strange. Uh, and I would say I go into that Sabbath more exhausted and not ready, which makes it a more selfish occupation for me than not. Uh, how can I see if I go in exhausted? If I've set aside the six days, it's something else. Which is working hard, being exhausted. I set the six days apart, not the seven. It's what have I left? Just for the simple observation, the power of this is, since I visit a lot of churches, what makes me happiest is I hear within the liturgy the how are you doing? How are you? And that is posted in certain ways and raised uh, by the laity or by pastors or by priests in certain ways. How are you today? Uh, uh, what is going to happen to you? There's always a, a, you know, a perspective part. Um, there, there's, there's a family in transition. Someone is facing uh, news. Something's going to happen. <laughs> ready. Get ready. Uh, not wait. You know, not like it's the wrong day, but, you know, on Monday... Our work continues, and I'm letting you know something's happening. The names, the naming, uh, it's a part of a lot of faith traditions. I'm going to stop here, and I want to say, here's a name in distress. Here's a name in grief. Here's a name in transition. I mean, you know it. And there's the, you know, when it's done, when I think it's done well, even if I'm a visitor, and not even from there, there's a breath, a pause. I'm going to name names. And so your question is about what we see and what we don't see. One off unseen. I, I can't tell you how often I've heard a name that I know, and I go, well, she's not here. She's not here. What? I did not know. There's a loss. Just out of the blue sometimes, it's like, whoa, you know, thank you. Just the naming can go so far. Just like we name issues. We name we pray for those in great disasters. There's great floods that have taken place in Kentucky. We take the abstracts of the specific, and I think even people that are close to our lives, maybe in our own churches, congregations, and synagogues, and, you know, they can be one off pretty quickly <laughs> just because I didn't glance around. So I, we need each other to, to say their names. And, and for me, this is, uh, this is that simple, which lets me think about, yes, I have the care and feeding of myself, just part of this, reflection. But then it allows me to say, wait a minute, I'm not trained to help deal with grief. Is that something I need to prepare for, to help with? I'm not prepared to build houses. I'm not prepared to put roofs on houses. I'm not prepared to do the books for a nonprofit. I'm not pre you know, what is my job? So there's a nice reflection there too. Those are my thoughts, Bill. Thank you, Don, and thank you for your reminder that she is, in fact, noticed. Uh, perhaps I could edit my question that needs that we see, but we might rather not deal with. Thank you. Charles? No comment. Okay. Sarah? Well, I, I thought about this woman 
because she's going to be bent over. She's going to be more difficult to see because everybody else is going to be standing upright around her, and she's going to be bent over. So it's almost as if she's coming to worship just like everybody else. She's not coming to be healed. She's coming to Sabbath because that's her practice. And Jesus sees her and recognizes her need recognizes her situation and and he sees that as enough information to to heal her unbinding her loosening her from this particular malady and and for me that's interesting because how often do people walk by me unseen how often do i miss the opportunity or the gift that somebody's going to bring to me because there of no there's nothing there that would draw my eye or there's no circumstance that I would suddenly reach out to them and go, "Oh, I want to know more about that." So it's almost like there has to be this moment of somebody Don used to say this taking my head and pointing my line of sight to the thing I'm supposed to see. And I I'm thinking about Jesus doing that when he draws the audience's eye to this woman. And I remember Bill Wallace saying something about straightening her up was like restacking the bricks of a home that had been pushed over and then putting them one on top of the other and, and, and making her upright. So this sense of, of, of stacking it to be visible um, for us so that we would notice and, and pay attention to the gift that she brings. Um, I wonder about being blinded. And, and this conversation about binding and loosening to me is really a trigger or a, a, a intrinsic interesting thing to me. Um, are we blinded? Are we bound to our, our self-interest, our, um, our ability to be completely absorbed in our own thoughts and miss the opportunity for relationship and for healing with each other because we're so distracted by our next thing. Like, what's next on my docket? What's next on my schedule? Where am I headed next? What do I need to tackle next? And I miss the people along the way that would bring joy into the situation. And it's interesting because in this particular Bible passage, the audience rallies around her and the joy that takes place because she's been healed, almost as if she is this beloved person in this particular congregation, and and her healing, her disposition is something that everybody's aware of and takes joy in, which I think is lovely. I mean, think about the last time you saw something wonderful happen to someone, and it was uniform and in, in the response the whole congregation gave or the whole room was in an ovation for this particular moment and this particular person and the recognition of the gifts that they offered. I think that that's something interesting to me, that we often are um, willing to criticize rather than, than hold up somebody doing something really difficult. So for me, I'm, I you asked... Who are the ones today among us that um, might remain unnoticed? I said, who? Anybody different from me? 
Anybody not on my path, anybody who doesn't think like I think and are moving toward what I'm moving toward, I said, we are limited and bound by our short-sightedness. And I I have to say the irony of this, being short-sighted means you can only see one thing, and that's where this woman has been for 18 years. And suddenly she's upright, and we can't see her because we're distracted by what's on the ground. I just, I, just the irony of it. Um, so I wonder about our ability to recognize in each other the, the sliver of the, of the sacred, or the sliver of the creator that lives there. And we, we fail on a regular basis because they look different. They practice a different theology. They practice a different politic. They practice a different lifestyle. They practice... Um, maybe they eat different food and, and you've never tried that before. So those are all opportunities for um, a gift. Uh, I thank you for sharing that Bill Wallace image of restacking the bricks. <laughs> Hadn't heard that apt. Um Again, taking Don's editing, <laughs> that it's not so much unnoticed as they're noticed, but we may be reluctant uh, to respond. And because of my commitment with Habitat and with in Pinellas County Fast, which is like Hope in Hillsborough County dealing with social justice, uh, the housing crisis is something that we're uh, reluctant to deal with the soaring rents uh, and uh, still the homeless issue and the so-called NIMBY, not in my backyard, uh, at least in society, and I think somewhat in the church. Those, these are real needs, but we're uncomfortable dealing with them. Mental illness is still uh, a, a, a challenge, and refugees, this whole issue of how we handle people in crisis who flee for refuge. Um, and I think we're still struggling with how to deal with people whose physical conditions, who are, I think the term now is other-abled rather than disabled, uh, how we accommodate them. I, I still think we've got uh, a long ways to go and in terms of the personal, how do we need release, I, I believe that each of us has something that binds us. I think I've shared before that I came face-to-face. Uh, as I began to work years ago with people in recovery, I had never, have never been chemically addicted, but I came to realize I was addicted to people-pleasing. And it took some counseling and some hard knocks to begin to face into that. So I will just leave it that I think there are ways in which we are that woman and in need of healing. Uh, Question number three, after her healing, and Sarah, you've alluded to this, we're told in verse 13, the woman was praising God. And then in verse 17, the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things being done by Jesus. <laughs> the woman recognized and the people, if not the synagogue leadership. So as people of faith today, how do we and how might we enhance our praising God 
acknowledging and celebrating recoveries, reconciliations, restorations, transformations, etc. that occur. I've already mentioned recovery. Twice in my career as a full-time pastor, I preached a 12-week series on the 12 steps entitled The 12 Steps for Everyone. And each week, someone from the congregation gave a brief account after the sermon of how the step for that week had impacted their recovery. And people, including me, were surprised by who and how these stories unfolded. I will tell you, as a pastor, before I did the series, I knew of some people in the community in the church who were in recovery. It didn't take a couple of sermons into the series before people came out of the woodwork in the congregation. Numbers of people acknowledging, at least to me in private, sometimes publicly, that they had struggled uh, with recovery. And I'm not saying this is the model. I'm just saying that it reminded me that there was something to the old practice of giving testimonies. How has God influenced my life? Now, it can be overdone. It can become a show. And and I don't know, and I'm going to end in just a moment, but it, it reminds me we may be missing an opportunity for an appropriate way for us to recognize the recoveries, the changes that, that occur for people. And I would just encourage us to explore that. Charles? No, I have no comment. Okay. Sarah? So I'm a fan of... I'm a fan of uh, doodling for Google, and and this year's theme for artists or submissions was I care for myself by, and you fill in the blank with an image that Google will look at, and it's age, you know, the spectrum is everybody, and they have different groups based on age. Um, If you go to Google today, you will see the winner of the Doodle for Google award and the image is, I care for myself for, by not being alone. And it's this beautiful image of an embrace. And I, I just kind of thought, how appropriate that would be if we could look at each other. And rather than seeing the differences, seeing the value. And I thought that was really interesting for me that we often overlook the simplicity of just celebrating each other and the value of who we are and how we do things together better than how we do things separately. And and I think that that's, I think, laying wide open for us to do something with as we move toward a very volatile stage in our particular country. Um, it seems like we are poised to um, pick up arms against each other more than we are up um, poised to wrap arms around each other. So that's one thing I can offer. Thank you, Sarah. And Don. Good storytelling is called for, I think. What happened? And uh, we could get good at that. Uh, it's just great storytelling. You, talk, you were talking about testimonies. I'd say, what, what happened? What is the arc of 
the life, if we're in a state of readiness, what happened? If we prayed for people, we reached out, what happened? So I think I think it calls for great storytelling and also, you know, what spills out into the community. Uh, community of faith can work with great intention. You know, there are limitations, there are things we get frustrated with, we wish, we wish other things could be a different way, but Sometimes action is taken. What does spill out into the community? What framework is there expected in the community? And I think this is a call for, in the general way, you know, not regulation, but readiness, not sanction, but love. And that takes a lot of thought. I think about, as an adolescent especially, where I'm spilling out. I grew up in a church, you know, and I'm expressing myself on what I believe to be true. And, uh, you know, those are... Many apocalypses all through my boyhood where I'm confronting life and love outside the church. And I am transformed outside the church. And the stories I tell are, you know, I'm meeting Christ. My Sabbath experiences are in the classroom and on the streets, on the playgrounds and in debates. And that's where it happens. And so my stories are about, oh, if I can bear it, you know. My humiliations when I have to confront my heart, which often was formed, you know, in the faith. But I believe that's all part of the six days, uh, and that uh, Jesus is out there waiting for me as well, if I've used the Sabbath uh, appropriately. Those are my thoughts. It's yours, Don. Oh, all set? Well, thank you, Bill, for leading us uh, through this. And for those listening in, Palmasphere Presbyterian Church, who makes this podcast possible, is at 3501 West San Jose Street. That's in Tampa, Florida. That's where we, four of us, know each other. And uh, for more information, you can go to palmasia.org. That's P-A-L-M-A-C-E-I-A.org. We commend that site to you for great sermons, debates, disagreements, prayers, Learn how to tell stories, lift up each other, outstanding music, opportunities to take communion, and, of course, this ongoing experiment in the faith community of how we can be together and coming out of pandemic, how we can see each other electronically and, and, and help each other from a distance. That's what we're, we're experimenting with uh, as the months and years go forward. So you're always welcome, and we'll see you next time.